and to our regular virologist on the COVID-19 story, Dr Chris Smith, Cambridge University. Hi, Chris. Welcome back. Hello, Kim. Good morning. Uh, the UK has had its deadliest day yet. 980 dead, I think, nearly 9,000 in total. The big news, of course, was the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's admission to intensive care. He'd had COVID-19 for a while, Chris. Why suddenly do you think did he seem to deteriorate? Yes, we're very pleased that actually the news is that he has improved. He's up and about and uh, he's been taken out of intensive care to a ward. And that means they're obviously thinking he's improving and he ought to be going home soon. Because quite frankly, once you're over the stormy, bumpy bit, the best place for any patient to recuperate is at home because you're much less likely to have other problems at home and much less likely to catch stuff. But actually he follows the, the picture the clinical picture of what people who are getting this seem to show, which is, and it is a funny virus, it has a very long incubation period for some people. It can range up to 11 days is the longest real documented proven incubation period. The average is five days though. And then for about a week, people feel rough and they have the symptoms and they have a fever. Some people have a cough. About half of people have abdominal, intestinal disturbance with diarrhoea, feeling sick. Other people complain of lassitude, feeling exhausted. And then at the end of that, they either turn the corner and begin to improve or, as Boris Johnson did, begin to disimprove. And over the course of that week, people may then end up in hospital and in intensive care. They may just end up in hospital. But by and large, those people who are succumbing to this seem to get severe chest problems, they struggle to get enough oxygen into their bloodstream, they then get put on supplemental oxygen, this sometimes fails, and then they need uh, things like support for their ventilation, which initially can be a mask over the nose and mouth, which helps to raise the pressure in the airway, and you can push air in and increase the oxygen in that air you're pushing in. This can work for some people, but if that's not enough, you then have to go the whole hog and you put the person to sleep you put them on a ventilator and then you let that take over the work of breathing for you and so Boris Johnson does actually fit the pattern of people who are presenting with this as far as we know. Now there are disturbing reports from South Korea that patients that they thought had recovered and were clear of the virus tested positive again. What do you make of this? Well I'm a little bit cynical about these reports. I think probably they reflect the fact that the test isn't great and the way in which we're sampling people for the virus isn't perfect. And so as a result, we're generating false negatives. When we do these tests, we take a swab from the nose and throat. And what you're looking for are bits of material brushed off the nose and throat with virus in it because that material is then put into an extraction buffer This is a chemical that busts open cells and viruses and lets the genetic information come out. And the genetic information is then fed into a machine that copies the sequence of that genetic information millions of times. And then we can read the copies because we have enough of it there to look at. And you can see immediately the Achilles heel here is if you don't have enough virus there because you swabbed the wrong bit or it's present at just very low level, you might miss it. And this means that either very early on in a person's disease course, where they're going to have low levels of virus, you can miss it. And also once they're recovering and their immune system is removing the virus, you can miss it. 
So I suspect that where we're seeing these reports of, I'm not saying exclusively, but I think a, a significant number of cases where we're seeing reports where people are being called positive, they have the symptoms, they have the syndrome, and then they recover. People say, oh, you're fine now. And then they go back and look again and they say, oh, you're negative. And then, oh, no, it's back again. I think some of that, probably a healthy proportion of that, is that the test isn't particularly great. All right. Because how long was immunity if you'd had SARS? Well, we we don't really know because we haven't had the problem of SARS coming back again to rechallenge people. But what we do know is people made no, that's a, true. People people did make a response to it. We could detect the antibodies to it both in people and in animals that were experimentally infected. And as far as we can tell, those antibodies are long lived. But what we don't know is what would happen if you then rechallenged a person because SARS fizzled out, thank goodness, because it, it was pretty nasty, but it didn't spread very well. And because it fizzled out, we haven't had to cope with it again. And I think that kind of made us a bit complacent because people thought, well, we dealt with that, you know, it, it, it's all fine. We're good at dealing with these sorts of pandemics. And now we've been caught with our trousers down. But based on your knowledge of viruses in general, you're fairly confident that having contracted COVID-19 once, you will be immune for at least some time. Yes, I'm very convinced of that. And we've got quite good experimental evidence, both from people, but also from animals, because researchers have now got animal models. They've been putting the virus into monkeys. They've also now, there's a paper in the journal Science this week, where they've actually begun to challenge other animals with the infection to see how they fare. And we know that in the monkey model, and also in humans, you get a very similar trajectory in these monkeys to what humans get and you infect them they get a similar syndrome and then they recover and if you look in the bloodstream you can find evidence that the immune system has mounted an effective response it's made antibodies and those antibodies have neutralized the virus and they become virus negative you can't detect virus in them anymore and if you then go back and look later you can find those antibodies are still there and you can take samples of those antibodies and demonstrate that they neutralize the virus now, they've not taken it out to a very long time point, though. This is the, the constraint of this study at the moment, because this is a brand new virus. It's not like they've been able to do these experiments and then wait six months and retest the animals. We've only known about the virus for a short time, so the longest time point reported at the moment is about a month. But we know it's still at a month. There is a protective immune response still there. So I'm confident that people who are fighting this off are making neutralising antibodies that will give them at least short-term protection, there's no reason why they won't get long-term protection, but we do know that some coronaviruses are fickle, and when you get infected or an animal gets infected with them, the immune response can wane under certain circumstances and, and return an individual to susceptibility. Now, that's an important question that needs to be answered, and as we go through this and we get more data and more examples of people having caught it recovered and then being followed up, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get answers to this question quite soon. What do you make then of the study from Fudan University in China where recovered patients can display very low levels of antibodies? Um, in some people, antibodies couldn't be detected at all. Well, this, we should hasten to add, this is a paper which was published in what we call a preprint server. 
the volume of data and the volume of science being done around this new coronavirus out- outbreak is huge. And it's so huge that there's not time for journals to process things at anything other than breakneck speed. So what a lot of people are doing is, because the research may be valuable, they're putting it onto these preprint servers for everyone to look at first. And then some of these things then go through the normal peer review process and appear in proper journal form. Now, the paper you're referring to is currently in one of these preprint servers. It hasn't actually been across proper peer review yet. So one must always view those sorts of bits of science with scepticism. But the critical thing is what you said about the group of patients they they studied. These are people who have recovered from coronavirus infection. So if they've recovered, regardless of whether they had many or few antibodies, they've recovered. And therefore, they made enough antibodies and enough immune response that in that context, A, they got better, so they were obviously doing a fine job for that person. Also, the way they did that work, they tested not against real virus, they tested the people's blood against bits of the surface of the virus, different components that the virus is made of. And it may well be that while that person had low levels of antibody against the things that those researchers tested, perhaps they had high levels of antibodies against other bits of the virus surface that they didn't test. And because they haven't looked, they don't know they're there. So I'm sceptical about really what that study means. The key thing is those people had recovered. So actually for them, their immune response worked just fine. The long-term immunity, though, has not been scientifically established. We're just keeping our fingers crossed on the basis of what we know. Yeah, for the moment. Um, And we have some experience with coronaviruses because this uh, is one of seven that are known to infect humans. There are four which were circulating and we previously regarded them as just benign seasonal infections they cause coughs and colds and they affected a few percent of the population every year and we, we've thought for, thought of them as as just mild infections we have some experience therefore of what they do to us we have some experience of what they do to our immune system and we tend to to be able to say well look you make antibodies against those so we're confident that there will be an immune response but what we don't know is with this new beast this new coronavirus is it going to follow that behavior or are the antibody titers going to wane over time which other members of the coronavirus family seem to to do sometimes so time will tell but at least in the short term we're confident that people are mounting an effective immune response when they recover and that's protecting them how much of a problem do you think these asymptomatic cases are going to be probably a big problem and we don't know how many of them there are yet Um, I was listening to Sir Patrick Vallance, who's the UK's chief scientific officer, and he was talking at one of the Downing Street press conferences that are happening each day at the moment, bringing up uh, or praising the population of the status of what's happening in the country, what the science is saying, what the public health measures are saying and also you know what the politicians are saying and one of the points he made was that we we don't know for sure but they may make up a third of the case burden up to a third maybe even higher but we're not going to know yet because until we get some serological assay where we can test people for antibodies and we can say yes you've had this infection now what symptoms have you had and people then say well I haven't had any we won't know for sure the the numbers you know there is some lack of certainty about this because a good study group is the people who were evacuated from wuhan and the japanese have published a case series where they've published data from people who were evacuated asked have you got any symptoms and they were followed up and tested 
and a significant, not a huge number, but a significant proportion, probably, um, I think it was down, you know, single numbers of percent, 10%, something like that, uh, reported that they didn't have any symptoms, but they did have evidence of being infected with this new coronavirus. And they were a range of ages and backgrounds and previous pathologies and so on. So it's not a given that um, you're young and you'll be asymptomatic. It's not a given that you'll be older and have more symptoms. It's a range and very, very difficult to predict. And we're going to probably need some biomarkers or some way of teasing out based on making measurements of a person, how they're likely to behave when they interact with this coronavirus. And people around the world are now beginning to do that. They're beginning to to study samples from people before they got infected and then looking at the clinical course and what happened to that person and asking, are there any fingerprint chemical changes here or molecules that we can measure that will tell us who who are going to be the ones who get a mild infection, who are going to be the ones that get a severe infection, because arguably that sort of test would be very valuable as well because we then know who to keep an eye on. No, I, I keep coming back to this thought, and I, I, I suspect you've dealt with it already, but I'm going to put it to you again. If there are lots of people asymptomatic who have contracted the virus but are not laid low by it in any way, the fatality rate, the ratio of death to infection would would look a great deal better than it does if you take the asymptomatic people out of the equation. Yes, it absolutely would. And in fact, that's what people like me are banking on, the fact that um, the case fatality rate looks artificially high or higher than perhaps it really is because what we don't know are the people that have had it and we don't know they've had it, so we're not including them in our calculation. What I'm hoping that we're going to find is that uh, actually a lot more people are catching it, catching it in a benign way, and uh, and uh, therefore not being tested. And in fact, if we do get those numbers, we'll find that the case fatality rate is much lower. But if that's true, Chris, have we not turned ourselves into North Korea for the sake of a virus that is more often than not benign? Well, I don't think you can look at the death rates and say, well, there are now 10,000 people nigh on dead in Britain um, who weren't dead a month ago and um, and say it's it's it, you know it's business as usual. I think there's clearly something going on, and we've we've clearly got a problem here. I don't think we are overreacting in the extreme, but we are going to have to work out a way out of this. And this is the the big thing we've realised. You know, people people have realised that this is not going to go away. It's not going to go away overnight. And other countries like Singapore, for example, are having resurgences where they've relaxed a bit, and they're seeing a return of cases. And so it's clear that uh, it's not a simple case if you do this for a while and then go, phew, that's got that over with, back to business as usual, because it will be back and and it will prey on those susceptible people again. So we've got to have some kind of manoeuvre ready now. We've bought ourselves time. We've suppressed levels down. Um, We now need to work out who those most susceptible, who those vulnerable people are. And even if they are only a tiny fraction of the population, it still matters. And therefore working out who they are and how to keep them away or protected while we sort out a longer term strategy is, is is a target. Because what that means is that we can then work out if we know everyone else can be reassured and they'll be okay, we can let that lot go back to work, perhaps in stages, so that we don't get huge great surges in disease activity because there will still be people in the group we let go back to work and so on who will become victims. They'll get severely unwell just by chance if you look at the stats we've got already. So therefore we, we need to do this in a managed way. But until we have those numbers and have more data, it's going to be really difficult to inform that strategy. Somebody's asked me um, if 
what the negative rate of the COVID test is. How many false negatives? The mm. false negative rate depends what which test you're talking about. By its about, nature, though. is unanswerable. I suspect yes. Well, well, are we talking about the test which asks, "Have you got coronavirus infection right now?" Or are we talking about the test that says, I'm looking for antibodies in your bloodstream and I want to know if you've got evidence of having had the virus? Because they're actually testing two slightly different things. Because the antibody test tells us about past exposure and that's useful to reassure someone you are immune at the moment. You could go back to work with impunity. You can go and see patients in your health service and you're not going to catch anything or give them anything. So that's reassuring. But if you're asking asking the question, has this person in front of me got coronavirus infection right now? That's slightly different. Now, what we know about the antibody tests is that a lot of the commercial assays that are being offered, they are very, very mixed performance. Some, uh, I was just looking at a paper before I came on air, where the sensitivity was as low as 65%. So in other words, 65, it will find 65% of the cases that should be positive, it will call them positive. That means it's missing a very significant number of them. Some of them are more, more performing better. Some of them are sort of north of 90% sensitivity, so that's a bit more encouraging. Um, so there's a mixed bag is the answer, and they haven't got the benefit of being tried and tested and verified and validated on big data sets yet. So one uses those tests with caution, and that's why the UK government have not leapt at just commissioning them. They've, they've bought preferential opportunities to buy large numbers of tests when they're satisfied that, that the tests are going to be any good. So that's that. Put that to one side. The What about the here and now acute test? Well, what I can tell you is that um, there are risks with any of these tests because A, you can swab someone and swab them too early. We've already discussed that. Uh, you can swab someone and swab them and miss where the virus is in their respiratory tract because the levels might not be high. And we've t- sort of mentioned that. And I've seen a case of this myself where we tested a person. The test said they were negative. A week later, I had a phone call from the intensive care unit looking after them in another hospital saying, are you sure this person's negative because we've now got them on a ventilator? And they then sent me some samples from the patient's lungs and they were roasting hot positive. So in other words, you can you can get false negatives with these tests. And then there's the whole point that the way we're doing this is copying the genetic information. Sometimes that just doesn't work very well. There are various chemicals in the patient sample that inhibit the ability to copy genetic information. That can be a problem. And sometimes they just don't have very much virus there and we, we miss it. So some of these tests just don't work very well. So we estimate that we might be missing a third of the positives to a half of the positives that there really are with some of these tests. If you have a big viral load, are you going to get sicker? And if so, how do you get a bigger viral load? What's viral load? The virus load or viral load is merely virology speak and doctor speak for how much virus is in a certain amount of a sample. Now, we use this very usefully for certain standardised samples when we monitor certain diseases. Let's take HIV as an example. When a person is being treated for HIV and they're taking their drugs to suppress the virus, what we're looking for when we take a sample of blood is an unrecordable virus load. And that means you take a milliliter of blood and you say, well, in a milliliter of blood, I run it through my assay and I can't detect any virus. Or if they're not responding to their antiretroviral medication, you'd say there are X number of copies of the virus in every milliliter of blood. 
We do the same thing for many viruses, hepatitis viruses and another virus called CMV. And then when we put a person on treatment, we can then repeat these tests and we can see if they're responding to the treatment because the next week it'll be a bit less and the week after that a bit less and then it's gone unrecordable. So you're using the virus load as a measure of how how well that person is responding to their therapy or perhaps how unwell they are from that disease at the get-go, how poorly their immune system is controlling it. Now you've got to be a bit cautious when you use that phrase around this new coronavirus because a swab from the back of the throat or some washings from a patient's lungs are not a standard sample. It's not like saying, I've got a milliliter of blood here, that's a standard sample. You can't collect samples from the respiratory tract in a standardised way and then standardise your measure of them. You can record how much virus is there and you can semi-objectively say, well, if there's a lot, that person's probably iller than someone who's got a little. But if you just happen to swab the blob of mucus that's got millions of viruses in it, you'd conclude, oh, very high virus load. And if you swab the bit next door that hasn't, you might conclude very low virus load. In fact, you could be wrong on both counts. Somebody has texted to say that they've had the COVID symptoms for a week, a week-long fever, and then developed into cough, and then pneumonia, was tested twice, it came back negative... They're concerned that they had it. Can they get tested for antibodies to see if they have had it? Well, at the moment, there are are not any validated antibody tests that a person could do um, to make sure they've got antibodies or not. And one should bear in mind that I just looked at the data from the UK testing today and about a third of the... They almost did 20,000 tests today in UK labs like ours around the country, and about 6,000 of them were positive. So in other words, you've got about a third of the tests are returning a positive. These are all people with symptoms of coronavirus. Now, even if we were missing half of them, which I don't think we are in these cases because they're testing people in hospitals and so on, but even if we were, that means that a significant proportion of people with all the symptoms they have not got coronavirus infection. So in other words, there are lots of other things still floating around causing very similar symptoms, sufficiently similar to fool doctors into thinking these people might have coronavirus infection and they haven't. So it may well be this person has had coronavirus and the tests have missed it. On the other hand, there's a reasonable fighting chance that actually they've had something else and that's laid them low it wasn't coronavirus. I can't tell you at the moment which it was, and there's no test at the moment that's reliable that I would recommend to you that that could do that. That will almost certainly change. It's such a big issue. We're going to get an antibody test for this that everyone can rely on quite soon. But at the moment, they're so hit and miss, I wouldn't recommend any of them. There are, as I understand it, three areas you can take swabs from. You can take a a throat swab or a nasopharyngeal swab or 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 a lung swab. Is that right? Well, it would be a very long swab if you got it into someone's lungs and it would certainly make them cough a bit. So yeah, I, I sure. wouldn't like to be a volunteer for I mean, that, but I know what you mean, Kim. What you're getting mm-hmm. at is, you, yep, yes, yep, we can yep. swab the nose and throat with what looks like a giant cotton bud. But when a person's having more invasive measures, perhaps they've been admitted to hospital, perhaps they're now in intensive care, then often people can put a scope down or a tube down into the lungs. And under those circumstances, they can sometimes aspirate material or we do what's called a bronchoalveolar lavage and you blow a little bit of fluid down into one of the airways and then you suck it back out again under vacuum. And because it carries back with it anything that was sticking to the airways, 
it dislodges material like viruses and bacteria and other things and, and they get sucked up and then we can process that sample. And that's a very sensitive way of detecting this and many other things that cause mischief in a patient's lungs. So does the accuracy of those swabs, does the positivity of any of those swabs depend on the progress of the illness? In other words, could you have a, could you have a negative throat swab, but by the time you get into the, you know, the mucus of the lungs, it's positive because it's moved on. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Um, obviously, the stage of infection will affect how sensitive your test is because, you know, taking the extreme example, say I've just infected you with coronavirus, the amount of virus that's actually there present on your airways is going to be zero because the virus will stick to your cells, penetrate and invade them, and then while it's first growing in the cells, it will be completely undetectable. It's not till it's gone round its round of replication and made more viruses and begun to bud out from the cells and infect other cells and, and shed into the onto the surface of the airways that it becomes detectable again. So the extreme example would be straight after infection, you actually are going to test negative. Now, as the disease progresses, we do know that in people who get the severe lung infection, you can often get cases where we're recovering virus from the lungs and you can do CT scans, for example, and show that people have got changes radiologically in their chest. They've clearly got disease there, but we've had swabs that have been negative. And, you know, the patient I mentioned earlier, where, in fact, there were two patients where they were negative on one of our tests from the nose and throat swab they had such severe disease that they ended up in intensive care and it was only then that we tested them and got got a positive but not from the nose and throat and that's the funny thing about this virus it seems to replicate or grow better at different anatomical sites than than say a normal cold virus does so it makes it quite hard to detect um, concern has been raised, says a listener, by Italian intensivists and reported in Medscape that mechanical ventilation may be contributing to morbidity and mortality in coronavirus cases. Germany, they say, is very conservative with mechanical ventilation. It could be one reason for their lower mortality rates, as reported in The Spectator. Any comment on that? Well, first of all, what we mean when we ventilate people... Well, when a person isn't getting enough oxygen into their bloodstream, what's happened is that there's been inflammation and swelling in the lung tissue. This is often because virus has damaged cells there. This has caused the blood vessels to dilate and become leaky and also immune cells to rush in and flock to the site of injury. And this ends up filling up some of the, some of the airways and the air sacs that would normally do the gas exchange with inflammatory debris and fluid. And as a result, the air where the oxygen is, is a much greater distance away from the blood where the oxygen needs to be. And as a result, you can't get enough oxygen into the blood fast enough. And this then has knock-on effects for the person's whole body, because obviously every organ is then deprived of oxygen, which further compounds the stress. So your initial intervention is to just put people on supplemental oxygen because if you increase the concentration of oxygen they breathe in, even though the distance when they've breathed that air in between where the oxygen is and where the blood is is greater, if you've got a higher concentration of oxygen to start with, you're pushing oxygen down a steeper concentration gradient or a hill as it were from where there's lots of oxygen to where there's less oxygen in the blood. So that can surmount this greater distance a bit. But if that doesn't work, you then up the ante and we can use things like positive pressure mask ventilation and you put this tight-fitting mask over the nose and mouth and blow air 
enriched for oxygen into the person, but they're doing their own breathing. And what that does is mean that you're again keeping the pressure in the airways a bit higher and because it's a bit higher it can open up some of the airways that may have collapsed because of the fluid and inflammatory debris that's there and the extra oxygen concentration can help to to drive more oxygen into the bloodstream but again if a person's uh, you know respiratory function is not good they may quite quickly tire because it's quite hard work breathing so fast and breathing so hard to overcome the having half your lungs out of commission and if they begin to tire out fatigue or they're just not oxygenating their blood sufficiently then you can escalate one step further and you put them on a ventilator and that means you put the person to sleep you paralyze their muscles put a tube into the windpipe and then you start blowing air in under pressure into that person. And that gives you very good control of the ventilation. It means you're doing all the work, not the patient, so that's a bit easier for them. But the problem is the lungs have not evolved to have air blasted into them. They have evolved to actually have a negative pressure in your chest because all your muscles are uh, opening up your ribcage and dropping your diaphragm, and air being pushed in by atmospheric pressure, not under these very high pressures. And when people have this, Uh, acute respiratory syndrome um, which is what they're getting um, is ARDS then when they're having that um, this distress syndrome this this is associated with with further scarring and stiffening of lung tissue because because of of ventilating people but it's between a rock and a hard place because if you choose to do this you've got you've got to do it you don't just do this for no reason you do this because if you don't do it the person will perish but if you do do it you're doing it very cautiously and conservatively because you need to to be aware of the damage that can be done. Now, what people have done, there's a company called, uh, or there's a a device called EcoVent, and they've gone back to the history books and said, well, when we had a polio problem in the 1950s and there were tens of thousands of people suffering with polio, which paralyzes your respiratory muscles, they had iron lungs. And if you put people in that environment, the person is in a sealed tube, effectively, and you drop the pressure inside the tube and this means that the atmospheric pressure is higher than the pressure in the chest and air enters the normal way and then you raise the pressure and they breathe out again so they've actually come up with a way of producing these they call them eco vent machines and they're going to have a go at ventilating people this way because it may be as it's less invasive and and has less pressure effects on certain parts of the lungs may actually be a kinder way to do this and, and prevent some of these onward effects of ventilation yeah, yeah, the later complications. Um, if you, this is a question we ask ourselves when we are out on our walk. If you are walking past somebody, particularly somebody who's running up the hill and breathing heavily or perspiring, should you hold your breath? <laughs> it depends if they put deodorant on or not, I suppose, if they're perspiring. But I guess that isn't what you meant, is it? Um, perspiring, perspiration is, is sweat and, and there's no virus in that. So that's not a problem. The The virus is chiefly leaving the body um, probably via two routes, actually. We're beginning to realise that lots of it goes down the loo. There's definitely faecal shedding of this under under many circumstances. But that's probably not a case a problem for a jogger. But... It is also leaving the body via the respiratory tract. And people are beginning to model, well, when people go for a jog, where does the air go? 
because we've had all this sort of guidance on social distancing and how far you should stand away from each other, etc. But this kind of the evidence around some of this is a little bit shaky. So people have begun to use various fluid dynamics modelling systems to then look at where the air probably does go when people are breathing that bit harder, but they're also moving that bit faster. And they've highlighted the fact that you can take models which were invented, in fact, to help people to win races by slipstreaming each other and say, well, if you were walking or running along behind somebody, what would be your likely uh, chance of encountering virus they just breathed out? And in fact, it's it's, uh, higher than we thought. So they're saying it's not so much how close you are when you're running or walking side by side with someone. It's what's happening to the people behind. So what the current council is, is don't worry so much about if you're walking or trotting along beside someone. Uh, If you're seeing someone directly ahead of you, leave a bigger gap. Make it four metres, not two metres, because there's quite a big bolus of virus that's going to be left behind a person. And you could walk into that, whereas once you get a suitable distance behind, that's had more dilution effect from the air and been blown away, so it's less of a risk. But to be honest with you, a person who's probably got coronavirus and feeling grotty enough to have a high amount of virus being shed from them is probably not going to feel up to being very fit and agile and exercising anyway. So your likelihood of encountering this situation is probably rather low. But uh, yes, that was the learning point for this week, was to stand a bit further back from people in queues. Well, unless they're asymptomatic. If they were asymptomatic, they might be romping up the hill. They might be, but one person's definition of asymptomatic is not another's. If you ask a person, do you feel like going for a jog? And they say, I feel a bit tired today, but they wouldn't call the tiredness a symptom. They would just say, I feel a bit tired today, but they wouldn't go for a run. And it may well be that what people are defining as asymptomatic differs from one person to the next. Have they got high temperature? Have they got a new cough? Do they feel really poorly? No. But if you then probed a bit more deeply, do you feel tired? Do you feel a bit fatigued? Maybe you're fighting something off. They might say, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I do. So I think that needs a bit more probing before we just define asymptomatic as nothing wrong with you whatsoever. Probing, I don't like that word so much anymore. Um, (laughs) Do we end the lockdown, which is what we all want, and not end the lockdown because what we fear is another surge? How do we make that call? Uh, This is what everyone is struggling with and no politician will answer the question and the reason they won't answer the question is because they don't know and at the moment people are saying well we need more testing and you said well okay we'll give you more testing what are you going to do then and i think currently the strategy that people are thinking along the lines of is probably a staged reduction of the lockdown and this will be supported by intense surveillance and what i mean by that is what you'll do is ramp up testing capacity. We use the suppression measures to get down the amount of virus circulation in the population to a really low level. You then allow the people at the lowest risk to go back to work or back to school. And you make sure that you keep the people who are at most risk shielded while all this is going on. So it's still not very good news for them because they're going to continue to suffer in silence and be lonely. And we all feel for these people because they're really going stir crazy now. And it's only been two weeks and we're talking about months. But basically what that will achieve is it will mean that the economy can operate a bit industries can operate a bit the youngest people who are probably being hardest hit who have probably been laid off etc can get back into some semblance of work and if there is low grade spread through that group which there almost certainly would be 
it wouldn't matter so much because they're less likely to have bad outcomes. They're less likely to then overwhelm healthcare services. And then because they will carry this agent from schools or whatever home to their parents, and remember most people up to the age of 30 seem to still be living with their parents these days because they can't afford to move out. So <laughs> the chances are that then infects the parents. But because parents have tend to be younger if they've got kids, then that means that younger parents who have probably got more fortitude and ability to cope with this then also get infected. So slowly what you're doing is growing herd immunity. And once we've got a sufficient level of herd immunity, then we can evaluate whether or not it's safe to, to let the people who are more vulnerable out again. Um, that That is the sombre message we're getting at the moment, which may be the only way out of this, because a, a vaccine is quite frankly, you know, not in not not even this side of the horizon yet. Very interesting. Fascinating. We could talk for hours. Thank you once again for joining us, Chris, and stay well yourself. I'm hoping to do so. And you, Kim, and thanks very much and uh, good to talk to you.